This is a Bournemouth University podcast. As part of the 2018-2019 Fusion inaugural public lecture series, Professor Richard Stillman gave his inaugural lecture at the Royal Motor Yacht Club in Sandbanks. Professor Stillman is a professor of ecology, and his lecture was titled The Limits of Space and Time, Predicting How Environmental Change Affects Coastal Birds. Thank you. This is a fantastic venue to do this, and I, re- I really appreciate that this can talk could be done here. Although at the moment, I'm not sure whether I prefer the view out the window or the view of the bar. There's something to do, because I've been kept away from that. I've got to keep relatively sober while I'm talking. So what I'm going to talk about is the, hopefully I get across, the way that we can try to understand how we can predict the effect of different types of change on coastal birds. And the types of birds that I'm talking about are birds such as these over here, oyster catchers. So that's a bird that I've researched a lot. They're a sort of fairly common bird that you would get around coasts such as this. I'm also talking about birds such as a, a curlew, lapwing, bartow godwit, those sorts of birds, but also ducks and geese and swans as well. So Brent geese works on a lot, those sorts of things. They're the sorts of birds that, we're, that, that I'm going to be talking about as we go through. So as this is a, a professorial lecture, I should really start a bit about myself. So I'll do a few slides to give you a bit, give you a bit of a background to me. So, this is me. Uh, In the 1970s, uh, about 14 years old, uh, um, and with a nice pair of flares on. You can date it from the picture there. So, I'm I'm from London. I'm from North London, Wood Green, which is near Tottenham. Um, And as long as I can remember, I've had a fascination for wildlife, particularly birds. I don't know why. I've just got that inside me, that sort of fascination. And, but living in London meant it was hard to see a lot of wildlife. There wasn't a lot around. So the main chance that I got to see wildlife was usually when I went fishing with my dad on the River Lee, which is the north of London. So this is me in about 1978 on a fantastic day uh, with my dad fishing there. So that was the way that I used to get my fix of wildlife, I guess, through going fishing. So that was in me from the start, that interest in birds. You could also say that I'm of the sort of a space invaders generation. So this was one of the games that was around when I was young sort of thing, late teens, just before I went to university in the 1980s. Um, And about that time, you could buy um, books that allowed you to type in the code to create computer games because things were so simple then. And my mum and dad, who've been incredibly supportive of me over the years, bought me a Commodore 64 computer, which was an early sort of PC that you could get then. And I typed in the, uh, the code for Space Invaders, had no idea what it did, how it did it. And I started fiddling with that code. Could I change the way the Space Invaders move? Could I change the colour? Could I change the shape of their legs? That sort of thing. And all of a sudden, inside me, something clicked that I knew how to write computer code. And computer code is effectively a thing that you do to try to get the computer to do something for you. So that could be that could be to get it to do a Space Invaders game, or it could be get it to do lots of other things. So at that stage, inside me, I had the passion for birds, and I'd picked up somehow the ability to write computer code that could get the computer to do things for you. So I went to University, University of East Anglia, 
in the 1980s where I um, met my wife, Alison, who's also been incredibly supportive to me over the years and probably put up with quite a lot. Um, and there, I was a keen bird watcher. We're both keen bird watchers. But I discovered there was another level of bird watching when I was at university, and that's twitching. And twitching is sort of bird watching on acid, is what it would be. It's like, it's the, uh, all you're trying to do is see as many rare birds as you possibly can within your lifetime, within a year, within a day. And twitches would be connected to a network of people where they would, or organizations which would then tell them where the latest rare bird would be. And I'd got a car, so I was befriended by twitches who needed to get from A to B very quickly when a rare bird turned up. So I became a twitcher. And this is one of the rarest birds that I saw in the 1980s. It looks like a seagull, but it sends shivers down my spine to see it. So this is a slender-billed gull. And in the 1980s, two of these birds that had hardly ever turned up in the country before turned up on the North Norfolk coast. And I can still remember driving there, running along the shingle ridge at Cly to see them, seeing the birds, elation, happy as anything, then off down the pub. That's the way twitching used to work. But, so I've got this interest in birds, but I'm a twitcher as well. I'm still sort of a twitcher, but I'm more of a sort of sedentary twitcher. I just wait in one place, waiting for rare birds to come to me. And it's much surprising. If you spend long enough looking, you see lots of things. So that's the sort of uh, the twitching side there. In the 1990s, I then got my first job where I was looking at the behavior of birds. So oyster catchers, one of the first birds I worked on. And since about 1994 to the present day, I've more or less done the same job. I've been in different organizations, but the research side has been the same. And it's all about trying to understand the behavior of birds such as oyster catchers, and, but then trying to do something useful with that understanding to try to advise the conservation of the species. So another change happened in my mind. I went from being a, a twitcher that is just interested in counting the number of birds to a twitcher that is interested in observing the behavior of birds. And that is a complete change in mindset. And hopefully I can get across to you the importance of really understanding the details of the behavior of uh, these of these birds and what you can do with that. So in the 2000s, two very nice things happened and our two daughters arrived. Um, Alison is also a really keen bird watcher and is also much more able at identifying a much wider range of wildlife and plants and she's a, than I am. But this is us sat on the Isles of Scilly um, on one of our several holidays we've had there. The Isles of Scilly is a fantastic place for sand, ice cream, and boats to see the seals. It also, by complete coincidence, happens to be one of the best places in the country to see rare birds. So I wonder why we kept going there on holiday. Okay, right. Hopefully that's a bit of an, enough of background uh, to me. So this is uh, some of the birds I've had the pleasure of working on over the years, just a range of different, uh, different species. The common thread through all the research that I've done on them, is trying to understand the details of the behavior and then to try to do something useful with that understanding. Over about the last seven years, I've also been the head of a group, a head of a department. I've had the pleasure of working with many, many people in that department. It's really nice to see some of them here today. A consequence of that has been that I've found it, I've had, found it very difficult to actually find a great deal of time myself to do the research. 
which has meant that I've had to rely very heavily on other people to do that for me. So what I want to do is get my thank yous in at the start rather than the end about all the people who've helped. So this is a picture of us, um, a number of us a few years ago on the ex-estuary, uh, a number of PhD students. I'd also like to point out Roger Herbert here, who's a colleague, nice to see you here. Roger, who's done a, been a huge help over the years with supervised many PhD students. A uh, number of PhD students, uh, me, what I used to look like a few years ago before this happened, and I must point out the person on the end. So John Goss Custard is sort of a, um, a legend within the coastal bird world. So if there was twitching for ecologists, John Goss Custard would be one of those people that people want to have on their life list to have seen. So I've worked with him since the mid uh, the mid nineties, and he's been had a tremendous influence on what I've what I've done. And a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is work that sort of stemmed from our from our work um, our work together. And one of the most important things that he taught me was to learn to think like a bird. Now this doesn't sound like the sort of thing that you'd naturally encourage someone to do. It doesn't sound very flattering, but what he really meant was that you should try to get inside their heads and try to think of the world from their perspective. So we're looking out at a, a coastal area with birds in. We're sort of an outside observer there. You've got to get in there and think about what life is like for those individual birds. That's the way to think about these sorts of problems. So this oyster catcher, what's it, what, what place will it go to feed on? Will it go to the place with lots of other birds, but lots of food, but lots of competitors? Will it go somewhere else? What are the decisions it's making? Why is it going to certain places? That's the way to think. And there's a couple of things that are really important for these birds, and that's space and time. They need space and time to do things in, in much the same way that we do. And what they're doing within, those, within that space and time, particularly birds on coastal areas such as Pool Harbour, birds here, and mostly here in the winter, effectively what they're trying to do is survive the winter in good condition. That's what they're trying to do. So what they're trying to do with that space and time is to find enough food to meet their energy needs. That is what those birds are trying to achieve. And again, that's the way of thinking about the, the sort of bird world from the bird perspective. That is what they're trying to do. And they're trying to do that in the face of environmental change. There's lots of change that's going on in the world. All these words are usually things that humans have done. So humans are creating a lot of changes to the environment that birds have to cope with, have to compensate with. All biodiversity has to do that. But it's important also to view that with the backdrop of natural environmental change. So for example, sunspot activity will be causing changes in the climate independent of all the things that humans are doing. So the birds have got to try to cope with all of these changes going on. The challenge for myself and other ecologists is to try to predict what these changes, how birds will cope, will environmental change reduce the number of birds that can survive within Pool Harbour, for example. So all of these uh, issues occur globally, but they're all local. They have local impacts and you can also understand them locally. So what I'm going to do is, we've worked in quite a lot of places, but I'm going to primarily talk about the work that we've done in Pool Harbour because we're in such a fantastic setting and the sorts of changes that could occur so we've got this is Brownsea Lagoon out here so if you look over in that direction you can see Brownsea Island Brownsea Lagoon is a sort of a, a shallow water area really important for birds if the sea was to rise a bit 
Where we stood now is probably the last place maybe in Dorset to be submerged by the water because the seawall will just be built higher and higher as the sea rises. Such a valuable place. Places like Brownsea Lagoon, a few metres, couple of metres rise in sea level, the wall that protects that will be lost. And so sea level rise will affect Brownsea Lagoon, potentially losing that birds can't feed there. So that sort of sea level rise could affect, um, affect Pearl Harbour, lots of other things could as well. And the typical sort of question that, that I would get asked or colleagues would get asked from conservationists would be, will a future change to a site increase the number of birds that die during the winter? So the birds are trying to survive. Conservationists want no more birds than necessary to die during the course of winter. Or would it reduce the body mass of those individuals that survive? So after the winter, the birds have to go to their breeding grounds, which are generally to the north. They need to migrate to them. They need to end the winter in good condition to have the body reserves to make that migration land reproduce well. So that's the sort of question that we get asked. And there's a sort of a very smallish but really troubling word in there, future. So a lot of the way that ecology works is by trying to understand what has happened in the past and then trying to use that understanding to say what might happen in the future. The best way of doing that is if what is going to happen in the future has also happened in the past. So if we go back to the Brownsea Lagoon example, suppose Brownsea Lagoon had only been there for five years and we want to know what the consequences of Brownsea Lagoon disappearing would be. We just have to look five years back and say, oh, five years ago, there was no Brownsea Lagoon. This is how many birds survived in Pearl Harbour. Therefore, if we lose Brownsea Lagoon now, we'll have the same number of birds left. But Brownsea Lagoon has been there, not forever, but a sufficiently long time that we don't know what the world was like before Brownsea Lagoon was there. And then we've got really good data on the, uh, the number of birds that occur throughout the harbour. And in the UK, we're blessed with really good data on the birds that occur in coastal areas. There's the Wetland Bird Survey that maybe some of you are involved with, collects fantastic data to say how many birds are in different places. But it's always looking back. It's not looking forward what the consequences might be. So that future bit is really important. So a lot of the research that I've done is about trying to understand, have a really reliable way of predicting what will happen in the future based on sound, solid principles that won't change in the future. And if we think about things from a bird's perspective, sorry, this wasn't very clever. I put the key bit right at the bottom, which was a mistake in retrospect, and the not key bit at the top. So the what will not change in the future. So what will not change in the future is what birds are capable of and how they decide what to do. So Brownsea Lagoon goes, all the oyster catchers are still going to be oyster catchers, all the avocets are still going to be avocets. Oyster catchers can eat certain types of prey, big cockles and mussels, biggish worms, avocets can eat certain types of prey. That basic truth about what those birds can do won't change. And how they decide what to do won't change either because the decisions that birds make and lots of all of wildlife really make has been shaped by evolution. So birds make decisions that maximise their chances of survival and reproduction. That is why they do the things they do. Oyster catchers eat big mussels because that is favoured through evolution. If the environment changes, that evolutionary truth won't change. The birds will still behave in the same way and do the same sorts of things. So the, the, the approach that I'll talk about is based on that fundamental principle that the 
The birds remain the same if the environment changes and the way they behave remains the same if the environment changes. So just to, to summarise what my uh, research is really all about, it's about understanding individuals, perhaps to an obsessive degree, understanding what individuals do, how they behave. It's then about linking these individuals to ecology. One individual, the difference between ecology and one individual is ecology is lots of individuals. It's bringing all of those things together is important. And then it's trying to say something useful with that understanding. So this linking bit is quite complicated because you need to link together lots and lots of different individuals and lots of different features of a site that might be occurring. So the way to do that at the moment is to use a computer to do that. So my main contribution has been in this middle bit here. It's to use that understanding of computer programming that I picked up through typing in Space Invaders games, applying that to create a piece of software that can simulate estuaries. So you put information into this piece of software and a sort of model Paul Harbour runs within the computer with all the birds and the tide going out. That's the sort of thing that I do. So usually in science, once you've created a piece of software that does something, you have to come up with some clever combination of letters that describe what this piece of software does, like an acronym. And it's then got to be clever and ideally a bit humorous what it does. So in the early 2000s, we spent a lot of time thinking about how we could come up with some clever acronym to describe this piece of uh, um, uh, software. And it turns out we weren't clever enough in the end. So we decided to call it Morph, or I decided to call it Morph. And it's called Morph because it's flexible, it can do lots of things, so it's imply that flexibility in it. And it's also called Morph because Morph was the name of one of my favourite TV characters from the 1970s and continuing that some of you might be familiar with. Okay, that makes me happy, that picture. Okay, so childhood memory combined with grown-up activity is every time I see Morph, the name, it's been used in lots of places, that is what goes on in my head. Maybe that's a bit worrying. Okay, so this is what it looks like. So I'll try to explain how this model works. And I'll try to explain it hopefully in, in explain, well, clearly enough. So each of the different colored dots is a different species of bird. This is Paul Harbour, viewed from above. Um, and when the, every time it flicks, that's an hour going by. So every hour, this model is predicting where the birds will be in the harbour. When everywhere's blue, it means the tide is in, as it is now, few places for the birds to feed. When the colours appear in these areas, there's places for the birds to feed as they are now. So we use information on the tides to work out how the tide goes in and out. There's good information on that. We have lots and lots of information on the way that birds behave, and I'll explain a bit of that in, in a moment. And we also have information on the, uh, the energy requirements of the birds. All of that is stuff that you can get. Um, we also need to know how much food there is in different places within the, uh, the, um, uh, within the harbour. And I'll explain how that's done later briefly as well. <laughs> the actual places on the map where these birds are isn't the places where we see them in the real world. It's where these model birds themselves have decided to go. And they're all deciding to go different places based on the food available to them, how many competitors there are, all of that sort of thing. So they're doing the thinking for themselves. Um, so what we do is we, we run this for a winter, starting from autumn, going through to spring, and then we look to see 
how realistic that winter has been, how close that model winter is to the real winter that we could have observed in the real harbour. Are the birds in the right places? Are they doing the right sorts of things? Are about the right amount of birds diamond, usually about 1% to 2%, not huge numbers? Is it realistic? Um, if it's not, we make some tweaks, we try to change the model in some way. So you're never gonna get a perfect model because a model is a sort of simplification of the real world. It will miss lots of things that are important in the real world. We'll try to get as close as we possibly can. So once we've got a model of this type that we believe tell, tells us is sufficiently realistic, telling us what's going on in the real site, are the different colors, different bird species, not sure if I said that, <coughs> we can then change something. So this is Brownsea Lagoon here. So we could remove Brownsea Lagoon from this model, then run it through from uh, autumn through to the spring to look to see whether any more birds died because of that. So the birds that would have fed on Brownsea Lagoon would have gone somewhere else. And there would then be more birds in the other areas spread out away from Brownsea Lagoon. There either may or may not be an effect of that in terms of more birds dying. That's the sort of thing we do. If we simulate sea level rise, would reduce the time and area that places are available for. So this is um, uh, sandbanks, really popular for kite surfers. If we were to simulate a sort of an ongoing annual kite surfing jamboree, that kite surfers were in that area all year round, we'd then just remove that area from the, the model. Birds would go somewhere else, and then we look to see whether or not there's any impacts on the number of birds that survive. Okay, I'll, what I'll do, some of the examples later that I'll go through, they're basically using that type of approach to understand how um, the, um, to predict how the consequence of environmental change for different bird species. So, some of the observations that we make to work out, to try to understand the birds, I'll try to explain with this, uh, these videos here. So these are a Dunlin here, Avocet, Oyster Catcher, and Grey Plover. So we have lots of observations of the way that these birds behave and how they behave in different situations, either situations when there's more food, when there's less food, or when there's more competitors or less competitors, usually through videos, and then we try to understand the, the, um, the rate at which these birds can feed from those sorts of observations. So we've got to, and this is sort of thing Every time, this is, a, this is the difference between being a twitcher and understanding behavior. Every time you look out over uh, sandbanks or pool harbor, if you're a, a twitcher, you say, was there an oyster catcher there? Yes, good, right, was there a curlew? Yes, good. The other, what I do now is to watch the individual birds in much more detail to see what are they doing? What are they feeding on? Are they being aggressive with each other? All of that sort of thing, it gets far more just from thinking about the behavior of birds as you're looking at them. So this Dunlin is feeding prey by touch. So it's probing its beak very quickly into the water. So imagine if you were feeding for something, searching for something by touch, you'd be probing very quickly to find that. So by watching a bird feeding like that, you know that it's feeding by touch for the food. So the avocets over here, every time they sweep their beak on the ground, they sort of throw their head back, they're eating something. So they're searching visually for the prey because they can see where the prey is, they sweep. Every time they sweep, they catch something. If they were hunting by touch, they'd be sweeping much more rapidly than that. So you can understand whether animals are searching by touch or whether they're searching visually. Some things eat big prey. So an oyster catcher here, they eat mussels up to about that sort of size. It takes them about a minute 
to eat a mussel. All the time they're eating the mussel, they're potentially exposing themselves to more risk of another bird coming along and trying to steal that food. So food stealing is important. This is a grey plover. So this bird is searching by sight, but it's using a type of searching called pause travel. It stands still. It looks around it for movement. And then after it's decided there's no movement, it's caught something, it moves a bit further on. So you can recognise grey plovers miles away just by the way they move. They're really distinct from the way they move. And what they do is after they finish searching an area, they run just outside the area that they were previously searching. By, work, by looking how far the grey plover runs each time, you've got an idea of the area around it it's searching for food. So again, it's given away a lot of understanding about what's going on within that, um, within, that, within that bird. So lots of observations like that we do, but again, trying to really understand what's going on in terms of the behavior. Okay, so this um, video, I've got to set it up slightly because it's not a particularly good one. There's a few things that happen quite quickly. So at the start, these are oyster catchers feeding on worms on a, on a grassland area. Close to the start, an oyster catcher will come in from here and attack this one. This one will run away. That is an attack over the area in which that oyster catcher is feeding. It just pushes it out of the way, the other one runs off. Then, after, I'm not quite sure how long, but maybe not too long, a bird around here will start to get progressively more and more excited. And it will get excited because it has found a worm in the, uh, in the mud. Then, another bird over here will recognize that this bird has got excited, it's got prey. It will then run across, attack this bird, and steal the worm off of it. Something will go on over here, another bird will run and attack one. But if you can, I'll try to point out the bird as it's getting excited over here. It might be a bit of a difficult thing at the back, but just imagine what an excited oyster catcher might look like. <laughs> I'll explain it. Well, no, I won't. Right, okay. So, this is the first bird coming in, in a sec. Pushes the other one away, but it isn't searching exactly the same place. It's just pushed it away from that. Now, it's possibly this one that starts getting excited in a sec. One of them. A bird around there will get excited soon. That's no, this one. Okay, anyone see that? Sorry, I didn't set that up very well. A bird around here is probing away, suddenly probes more quickly. The other birds recognize that this bird has got potential prey, it attacks it. And we go around again. The, and every time a bird attacks another one, the one being attacked always runs away. And that is because the bird doing the attacking knew that it would win. The birds know the, 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 how, where they fit in the hierarchy, maybe a bit like we do, and uh, they only attack individuals that they know they will beat in a contest. So they'll all look the same oyster catchers to us, but there's all that differences within them. And that, that last one was an attack over prey items. It stole a prey item. Right, okay. So the... Oyster catchers know where they are in the hierarchy. They know if they're at the bottom and they know if they're at the top. So this bird here will move across here when I play the video. And this is a bird that's right at the bottom rung of the hierarchy. It's trying to find food in this area, but it knows if it finds something, it's probably going to get attacked. And it also knows if it gets too close to another bird, then it might probably get attacked as well. So, and what it does, it keeps its head up, it's this one. It's not really looking for prey. It doesn't really go where it wants to go. It'll, it'll dodge away from other birds. It looks quite nervous, okay, quite twitchy. So this bird, I think it's that one. 
that's the top dominant bird. It will just walk straight across the screen and do what it wants to do. Okay, so this bird here. It pushes others out of the way. It's got its head down. It's searching for food all the time. Other birds get out of its way. So if the crunch came and these birds were forced together, maybe Brownsea Lagoon has gone, the birds are forced together into smaller areas, this is the sort of bird that would be first up against the wall. That at the bottom of the rung, they will struggle. The ones that won't struggle are the ones that are at the top. So that dominance within birds, some are more dominant than others. It could be an age thing. It could be a variety of things that means that some birds are more dominant than others, has a big effect on the way that they behave. Okay, so that's the birds. So to, uh, to work out where the, uh, um, where the food is for the birds, we basically, in Port Harbour, there's about 80 places where uh, samples have been collected from. In each place, you take a core, uh, one or more cores from the, from the, uh, the, uh, the soil, uh, the sediment, then sieve that. So this is a couple of colleagues, Selwyn McGrawsey, Richard Caldo. You sieve it, you get rid of the sediment, and you work out what is in the, uh, what bird food, effectively, is in the, uh, is in the, uh, the sediment there. So, the, and there's been some evolution of sort of coring technology over the, over the years. So Selwyn there, he's got a Mark II corer. This here, this is a Mark I corer here. Okay, so it looks a little bit like a drain pipe, and that's because it is a drain pipe. We stick the drain pipe in the sediment, there's nothing on the top, um, and then we use a spade to dig that core out. We've now got a core in here. We then shake that out into a bag or something. We've now got a core of a sediment. That's the way that the thing is done. So Selwyn, the Mark II, the difference between the Mark I and the Mark II is that the Mark II has got a screw cap on it. So what you do, you push the core into the sediment, you screw the cap on, and then the suction that's created allows you to pour the core out. Really clever. So that means you don't need to go out with a spade with you. So one advance. In Port Harbour, we started, and it also allows you to core through water. In Port Harbour, we core through water. And the next evolution of the Mark II was to go into deeper water, so effectively we use a deeper, a deeper drain pipe. So you're now sticking a drain pipe this long into the sediment, about this far, pulling it out into the boat after you've screwed the cap on. You've now got six foot of water and six inches of sediment. You shake that out into the boat, water, sediment everywhere. So there were some problems with the Mark II. So the next evolution of the uh, coring technology, this is the sort of uh, Rolls-Royce we've got here. Uh, this, is, this is a Mark IV. So the, uh, but effectively the, pre the Mark III was quite similar. So what you've got is a corer at the bottom here. You've then got a tube here and a valve at the top. So, it's a bit heavy, uh, you push this into the sediment, up to here, you've then got this valve which you close, and then you can use the suction to pull that out. Now you haven't got a big core of water above your core. So, this is a valve, and when you're pushing this into the water, all, all the water that was above the core is shooting out of this uh, thing up here. So. An issue with the Mark III was that as you're pushing this into the sediment, all the water, freezing cold water is flying up into your face. So that's not a good thing. So the, the, the technological advance that happened in the Mark, uh, the Mark IV was this little clever 
90 degree turn here. So now, when you push the, the corer into the sediment, all the water shoots out sideways into the face of who's ever standing next to you. So that's a much better advance. So that's the mark four. <laughs> okay, so, but I still think we've got a way to go. And really understanding where the, the food is in harbours such as poison is one of the real limitations on what we, on what we do. But that's the sort of as far as we've got in terms of uh, core in technology. Right. So, so these are all the places in the uh, um, all the places throughout the world where we've applied this sort of approach. In each place, there's been some uh, information on tides, the food available to the birds, the behaviour of the birds, all of that sort of thing. What I'm going to do, and we've, we've looked at the effects of the seven barrage on birds, where wind farms should be placed in the Irish Sea, the effects of bridge being built between Denmark and Germany. So lot, lots of this, this sort of approach has been used quite widely. But what I'm going to do is just talk about the examples where we've worked in um, uh, Pool Harbour. So we've had about six different approaches we've used uh, with works in Pool Harbour. And then what I'll do at the end is just talk about one example of a more distant sort of uh, more distant uh, case study. So it's really important to sort of test these models as much as possible. Um, and we do an awful lot of testing to make sure the models are as reliable as we possibly, uh, possibly can. And we can, which we can plot. This would be the observed values along the bottom. This would be the predicted values that we get out of the model at the side there, observed and predicted. And ideally, you'd have all of those lying on a straight line, which would mean your model perfectly predicts what's going on. There's always going to be some variation because the model's a simplification. And there's quite a lot of scattering, how much time birds spend feeding, um, less scatter for mortality. But we do try to test them as much as we can uh, to make sure we've got reliable models. But again, they're never going to be perfect. Okay, so what I'm going to do is just go through some examples in, uh, uh, in Pearl Harbor, different types of environmental change that we have looked at. I'll explain a little bit about the, the way we think about how that type of different types of environmental change can affect the birds. Uh, and again, because it's, it's really important to be sceptical of model outputs, to try to make sure that the outputs are believable. So I'll try to tie things into some sort of real observations in the harbour uh, as well. Okay, so first of all, habitat loss. So habitat loss may remove something that's really critical. Brownsea Lagoon goes, it could be really important, or it might be bit by bit. So if a bit of habitat is lost, it could increase the density of birds, there'd be more birds to feed uh, within a particular area. That might increase the amount of competition, the amount of fighting that goes on between the birds. So that could be, then be a negative thing. So uh, Sarah Jarrell and colleagues a few years ago developed a model of Pearl Harbor that tried to predict the effects of removing uh, fields, terrestrial habitat. So going up to Wareham, this would be Wareham Water Meadows, go, it'd be Pool Park, Beta, those sorts of areas. They're important areas for, the, uh, for birds. Um, so we've got the area of fields, terrestrial habitat along the bottom. The dotted line going up is what the present day amount is. And so she simulated removing habitat from that sort of baseline present day condition. So for some birds, such as redshank and dunlin, the number surviving wasn't affected by that. So you can remove terrestrial habitat and still you get a higher proportion of those birds surviving. For birds such as curlew, oyster catcher and blacktail godwit, as soon as you start to remove any terrestrial habitat, you find that some of those birds, or potentially lots of those birds, are dying. So that says that some species are reliant on terrestrial habitat 
around estuaries. And that's really important because usually from a conservation perspective, it's just the estuary or the intertidal area that is protected. There's things called special protection areas. So Paul Harbour is one. It sort of stops at the top of the shore, the area that's got strong protection. But this shows that areas, surrounding areas, can also be really important for birds. So you can imagine the amount of grassland that could be lost around pool, for example, when houses developed, for example. So this is showing that conservationists should be concerned about terrestrial habitat loss, even though these are coastal birds that are spending most of their time feeding on intertidal areas. That was one of the sort of conclusions that came from that. We, we've also, I, I should mention in past, we've also looked at the effects of algal mat development in Paul Harbour, so it's a real problem. I haven't got any slides on that, but if anyone wants to talk to me about that afterwards, then I can, can mention that. Sea level rise. So the effect of sea level rise depends on how the, the coastline is managed, so whether a sea wall is maintained, whether, land, whether the sea is allowed to move inland. But it could reduce the uh, amount of area birds have got for feeding, it could reduce the time they've got for feeding, or it may have some, some sort of other effects. So this is a, again, the type of model I showed you, a pool harbour earlier, it's just changing the way that the, the tide moves in and out, these predictions come from. So this is a, from a PhD by Catherine Bowden a few years ago. This is the amount of sea level rise going on the bottom, and this is the percentage of birds surviving or supported. So again, if sea level rise has no effect, we'd expect lines to go straight across the top. Any birds where that, that, that plunge, as soon as there's a bit of sea level rise, there's a, um, a reduction in the number of proportion that can be supported. That is a sign that these birds are at risk of sea level rise. And the species that is most at risk, according to these predictions, is Bartow Godwit. So Bartow Godwit has got a couple of things up against it in, in the UK, at least. So it's a bird that typically doesn't feed in terrestrial habitat. So it doesn't have terrestrial habitat as a sort of a buffer to it. It also tends to feed on sandy sediments. You've got Bartow Godwit will feed on sandy sediment and doesn't feed um, terrestrially. You've got Blacktail Godwit that feeds on muddy sediment and does feed terrestrially. In Paul Harbour, most of the sediment is muddy and there's lots of fields around to feed on. Blacktail godwits have got it relatively easy in Paul Harbour. The only sandy area of Paul Harbour is really by sandbanks, Whitley Bay behind me. So the Bartow godwits have only got one place to feed. Whitley Bay is quite flat, so any rise in sea level could have a big change in the amount of area exposed, and they don't have the option of feeding terrestrially. So Bartow godwits have got a number of things up against them that I've it's sort of supported by what this model predicts. So again, Bartow Godwit, even though there's not that many in Paul Harbour, is a potential bird that, is a, that could be a threat. But others have got a range of responses. But I just really want to emphasise the Bartow Godwit there. So Avocet. So this was um, Catherine Ross a few years ago. So her PhD was on Avocet. Must be the perfect PhD. Such a beautiful bird to work on. She worked on Brownson Lagoon and also Middlebeer Creek, which is a good place for Avocets as well. So what she looked at was the effect of simultaneously increasing the height of the water, the sea level, within, um, uh, within Paul Harbour, and whether or not she kept Brownsea Lagoon in place. So she removed Brownsea Lagoon. When she removed Brownsea Lagoon, the Avocets would have to feed somewhere else. So about the first two or three months when Avocets were in Paul Harbour, they feed on Brownsea Lagoon. 
then after that, they moved to uh, Middle Beer Creek primarily, and they all snapped between there and Brownsea. What her results showed, so let's focus. This one is saying the, basically, if all the bars are at the top, it means the avocets are fat and everything's okay. The ones at the bottom, if all the bars are low, it means the avocets have survived and everything's okay. So any deviations of the top ones going down or the bottom ones going up is a sign that there's a problem for the avocets being predicted by this model. So what it's saying is that whether or not you have Brownsea Lagoon, if there's a 15.9 centimetre rise in sea level, it has no predicted effect on the birds. So I'm not saying that we can get rid of Brownsea Lagoon. Obviously, it's really important. And again, this is only a model. But sometimes these models tell you things that you that are perhaps counterintuitive. The model, it's not conservation biased, it's not industry biased, it's just sort of completely neutral. It just feeds out from what you feed it in. But as you have a slightly higher uh, sea level rise, then the presence or absence of Brown Sea Island is important. So a bit more sea level rise without Brown Sea Lagoon, then you do start to get an effect of the birds. So as the sea level rises, there'll be less other places in the harbour for the birds to feed, then Brownsea Lagoon starts to become more important. Okay, so again, just an example of the type of uh, predictions that we can that we can make. Uh, invasive species. So this isn't a question mark because I ran out of time preparing my slides. Invasive species basically means species that are introduced by people that tend to become more common within a, within the site. So Manila clam in Port Harbour is an example of that. So Manila clams are a um, Asian species of clam, about sort of so big. They're nice to eat, and there was a fishery created in uh, Pearl Harbour many years ago. The assumption being that Pearl Harbour was too cold for manila clams to breed. You could put them in, you could harvest them, they grow, it wouldn't be a problem. But Pearl Harbour is relatively shallow with a small, the tide doesn't go in and out very much, so parts of it can warm up, and the manila clams did breed. They're, they're a clam about this size. It just happened that the other natural clams about this size in Pearl Harbour a decline greatly before the manila clams came in. And so the actual presence of manila clams was a good thing for oyster caches. I'm not going to go through the details of what this shows, but effectively, with more food, large clams, invasive species in the harbour, it actually improved the situation for oyster caches in the harbour. So I'm not saying invasive species are always good, but I'm saying the effects that they could have could be variable. And if we have a view where anything non-natural is wrong, then obviously this will be the wrong sort of invasive species. In this particular case, there was an um, example where it could improve the situation. Shellfishing might cause disturbance. It can remove food from some birds that also eat shellfish, and it may disturb the sediment. So we've, we've used, used these approaches to look at the effects of shellfishing in lots of places throughout the country, and they're used to regulate a number of estuaries, the sort of predictions that we've made. This was just an example in Paul Harbour from Leo Clark, looking at as the amount of uh, the, the, the harvest going across here, more harvest of clams and cockles, more harvest and clams and cockles, the effect it had on whether the birds switched to a different diet. So more, less cockles and clams, the oyster catchers started to feed more on worms. They just switched their diet um, and they spent a bit longer feeding. But we didn't find any effects of sort of present day harvesting rates of these shellfish on the actual numbers of birds that are surviving. So sometimes shellfishing, human activities and wildlife can go sort of hand in hand. Um, last one, this example is disturbance. So it may reduce the air, 
area birds have feeding in, the time, and it might increase the energy demands of birds if they fly away. This was outputs from a, a PhD of uh, Catherine uh, Collop a few years ago. Blackwit means black-tailed godwit, barwit means bar-tailed godwit. More disturbance in each graph going across. Bad if lines come down more. And again, the species that was most vulnerable was bar-tailed bar godwit. So any increase in the rate of disturbance in the harbour could potentially influence the, the bar-tailed godwits. And bar-tailed godwit, like sand, doesn't like mud. People like sand people don't like mud. So more people will walk out on the intertidal areas of um, Paul Harbour on the sandy bit. So Whitley Bay, loads of people, dog walkers everywhere. That's where the, the bar-tailed godwits are trying to feed. So again, it's something suggesting that maybe there's some pressure that is being exerted on the, on the bar-tailed godwits there. I'm just going to end in Paul Harbour with a, a nice observation. This came from a, an undergrad project, Joe Cropram. He was one of the ecology students here, undergrad, a few years ago. He worked on, at the Beta, which is an area, uh, again, near Paul Park, and he worked on Brent geese, and he looked at the way that the Brent geese were being disturbed by dog walkers and people around the Beta. Brent geese, so these are a, um, a, not that rare, but a species that spends the winter in Paul Harbour, having migrated from Siberia. Canada geese, in around all the year round, an invasive species, the sort of species that people would think, well, it doesn't matter if my dog disturbs Canada geese, they're only Canada geese. He asked people walking through Beta what he thought these birds were, and over 50% of the people thought they were Canada geese. So it may be obvious to us, but I can remember when I first started out bird watching, it's really easy to make mistakes, and if you're walking your dog, you wouldn't, don't necessarily care what these birds are. So a bit of sort of interpretation at the Beta, telling, the people there that these birds are actually, they've got here from Siberia, they're important birds to protect, could be uh, important. So I think that's a really nice study. So just for very briefly, we can go off to one other place. So we're working at the moment in Eisenbeck Lagoon, which is on the far side of Alaska. And we're working there on a, a species, and we also worked, this bird, it, it winters, it breeds in the Arctic, it passes through Eisenbeck Lagoon, through Humboldt Bay, and then it spends the winter in Mexico. So the, this is a Brent goose. This is a black brant. They look pretty similar. There's a few differences in the coloration on them, the way the bar goes around the neck, but pretty similar. And actually, they're almost identical in the things they eat and the way they go about doing things. They also feed on very, very similar food. So the Brent geese in uh, Paul Harbour feed on uh, eelgrass, sort of a plant that grows in shallow water, and the, uh, the, Brent, the black brants that feed in Eisenbeck Bay also feed on almost exactly the same species of eelgrass, almost indistinguishable. In fact, these are indistinguishable, so I only have one photo, which I've used twice. And this is all, as I'm sure you're aware, this is Alaskan uh, eelgrass. Okay, as you sort of step back from the uh, site, you start to notice a few differences. So Eisenbeck Lagoon, you've got tundra, You've got uh, mountains, you've got the odd volcano, uh, Paul Harbour, Dolphin Shopping Centre, um, but a nice place anyway. Okay, but a good thing. There is also one big difference between the two places, and there's less bears in um, Paul Harbour, possibly none. And uh, 
so we went out surveying the uh, eelgrass in a um, Eisenbeck lagoon a couple of years ago, and alarmingly, I saw these prints in the uh, the sand. We're going to survey an area just like this. So, but fortunately, we were armed with something I'd never heard of before: um, bear spray. So, bear spray is a sort of a pepper spray based close range bear deterrent. And what what happened? which has got two alarming properties. One is that you need to have to wait for an alarming amount of time before you use this on the bear as it's approaching you. And also it seems to rely on the bear approaching you from upwind as it were, such that all the spray doesn't come back in your face. Uh, but also I was told the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the night before that you also need to be careful that you've got the right sort of bear before you use it because if you use it on the wrong sort of bear, it just makes them more angry. <laughs> so so uh, um, anyway, so I did the, stepped over the footprints, did the survey, and everything was okay. But the key thing is that we've been able to use exactly the same approach to understand the behavior of these black brands in this other place because, again, not very useful, what will not change in a different site what birds are capable of and how they decide what to do. So those same basic principles apply to the future, but they also apply to different places. So we, for example, now we've shown that the, the black brants in um, Eisenbeck are really vulnerable to loss of the amount of eelgrass that they feed on, and there's possible reasons why the eelgrass is declining. In Mexico, they could be particularly vulnerable to disturbance. The same sorts of things that influence the birds over here also influence the birds over there. So just to almost take us full circle, it really gives me huge satisfaction that I've been able to work on the species that inspired me so much as a, as a, as a, as a kid. And hopefully I've managed to get some of that across to you. Um, I could go on for about another hour or so, but to wait for the sun to go down, but I thought instead I'd show you a picture of the sun setting. So thank you very much for listening. The next inaugural lecture will take place on the 21st of May at AFC Bournemouth. In that lecture, you'll hear from Professor Michael Silk, who will be talking about his work on Olympic and Paralympic mega events. Visit www.bournemouth.ac.uk forward slash public hyphen lecture hyphen series for more information and to book your free ticket.